All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Well, Michael, when we broke for commercials, you said you thought that we have either bottomed in this market correction for gold and silver, or we are very near to having done so. Then you said uh, once that bottom has put in, it will be off to the races. So... Well, let me just ask you, uh, off to the races, you, you, you did the math. You talked about how in the 1930s uh, we basically had complete coverage, if I understood what you just told me. And then in 1980, when gold went up to $850 or thereabouts, at that point in time, we had almost full coverage. Um, of well, we our, had more. Each time it exceeded, the value of the gold of the Treasury actually exceeded. Actually the, exceeded uh, the, the amount of paper. Just before World War II. Okay. Uh, it was there was like 150 percent more gold than there was uh, uh, base money. Okay, so and, we've had uh, so we've had a tremendous explosion in money creation, far greater than anything we saw even in 1980. Uh, yeah. Do the math for our listeners. What to get complete coverage? Never mind excessive coverage. What kind of gold price would we need to see to match the or let's say the currency creation that's been. Uh, that we have now? Well, um, I, I haven't got the numbers for you uh, as of today, but uh-huh. I can tell you when the, the presentation that's in the third episode of Hidden Secrets was shot, which was quite a few months ago. That was when they were just announcing that uh, they were going to increase QE3 from $40 billion a year to $85 billion. Uh-huh. I mean a month, from $40 billion a month to $85 billion a month. Right. And uh, so now they've probably printed somewhere over, uh, they've added another $600 billion or something like that to the, uh, the currency supply. Since but back then, then before mm-hmm. they added that, um, it required about $13,000 uh, for the value per ounce gold, mm-hmm. for the value of the gold at the Treasury to equal base money once mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you include the overshoot, that it did back in 1980, the percentage overshoot. And I also add um, outstanding revolving credit, unpaid credit card balances mm-hmm. to try and to, to base money to try and uh, figure out what portion of the currency supply gold is going to cover simply because to a checking account, a businessman's checking account, base money and the credit-based currency that you create when you sign a credit card receipt are indistinguishable from each other. To When you pay a merchant and you pay with your credit card, you're creating currency. It didn't exist until your pen hit that paper and you signed that credit card receipt. Mm-hmm. When it gets deposited in his checking account, the checking account can't tell the difference between 
paper dollars that you could have paid that merchant or the credit card units of credit that you created. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's interesting is that when you add outstanding revolving credit to base money, you find that uh, gold covered that and shot way past it uh, for a short period of time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if that were to happen again, you're talking, you were, you know, toward the beginning of this year, you were talking about $40,000 an ounce gold. Now, I'm not saying that that's going to happen. We could have, you know, our monetary system is not based on anything except the promise to tax us in the future and air. It's just a belief system. Yes. Our monetary system, during the Great Depression, the greatest deflation that we've ever known, um, the monetary system was uh, a third of it could not vanish. A third of it was, was our base money then was gold. Mm-hmm. And that could not disappear. Uh, now the whole monetary system is backed by credit. It's backed by U.S. treasuries uh-huh. and by mortgage-backed securities and such. Uh-huh. And uh, then the rest of the, that's about 6% of the currency supply, and the other 94%, well, actually, it's probably about 8% now, because mm-hmm. Ben Bernanke keeps on creating more base money. So the 92% uh, is all created by the banks through fractional reserve lending, yes. just credit that they create. And uh, this can all vanish. That's what happened in the Great Depression. That's what the deflation was. It was okay, so I was. vanishing. Uh, and so uh, we don't know what the price will be in the future. Let but just, when you look at the Dow-Gold ratio, uh-huh. or what yeah. you're probably interested in is the Gold-HUI ratio, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you can tell what Gold's purchasing power should be. Okay, Michael, let me just, this is this brings me to a, a very interesting concept and a point that I think that you made in, in I think, either the second or third video. Uh, if I understood you properly, you believe we could run into a very serious deflationary problem before we get a hyperinflationary problem. Am I, is that what I'm hearing? Am I hearing you right? Yes, that, that's what I wrote in my book back when I, back in, in, in the middle of the last decade, I was, anal, you know, I started studying all this in 2000, after uh, the crash in 2000. Uh-huh. And, uh, um, my book was uh, six and a half years of research and two and a half years of writing and editing. It's and I said that we're on a wild roller coaster of a ride, that we'd have the threat of deflation to which Ben Bernanke would over... He wasn't Fed governor yet, but yeah. I said he would be Fed governor, and he would overreact by doing a, a helicopter drop. Exactly so what we, he's done. We had the threat of deflation with the markets collapsing, and he overreacted with a giant helicopter drop. Right. And he hasn't stopped that helicopter right. drop. And then I said there would be a... Uh, that would reflate the markets, and then uh, and that's happened. there would be a real deflation. Yeah, so everything I've said so far is, has come true. It's because coming true. Then there should be a real deflation where uh, credit starts to contract. And if you look at base money, his creation of base money is offsetting other credit aggregates that are collapsing and have been since 2008. So I think we're going to have a, a big deflation and then the powers that be, Ben Bernanke and the rest of the world's central banks, will just uh, print and print and print until deflation gives way. Okay, let and me just that stop time, you. There may be so much base money in the system yeah. that, uh, you know, if people start feeling good, a hyperinflation yeah. happens. Okay, let me just stop you now. Um, you said in the 1930s at least we had one-third of our money supply, our, mon- our, our, our 
was backed by gold, so that couldn't disappear. Whereas now we have virtually nothing. There's nothing behind our, our currency. So is it possible then that the deflation that we experienced this time could actually be worse than the 1930s? Oh, I think it's going to be a whole lot worse than the 30s, personally. Uh, I think that, you know, people don't understand the scale of the emergency that's going on right mm-hmm. now. They right. think that uh, Ben Bernanke fixed things and that, that the economy's back on track. Yes. But the, the Fed is still doing emergency measures. They're printing $85 billion a month, and that's over a trillion dollars a year. And people do not grasp the scale of the emergency measures that they're doing right no. now. No, no. There, oh, there was just a little over $800 billion in, of base money in existence back in, before the crisis in 2008. That means that's eight hundred billion is two hundred years worth of currency creation. That's incredible. Now, so that's zero point eight trillion. Now we create a trillion every year. That means we're creating more than two hundred years worth of currency every single year. This is in an emergency, the scale of which we've never seen before. I don't know what's going on behind the curtain, but for him to come out and say that they're not going to taper, yeah, and you know. And this was, we, we're uh, four years into an economic, a so-called recovery, an economic yeah. expansion. Yeah, that's um, laughable. And there's a recession every four to five years. For him to say that they're not going to taper is an admission that they can never, ever Exactly. Yeah. If they do, the whole thing comes crashing down. Right. You know, they could have, ta- tapering is not turning off the spigot. They could have printed $79 billion next month and then $78 billion the month after. But he wouldn't even do that. And so yeah. uh, I think we're looking at – I think that the crash of 2008 was just a speed bump on the way to the main event. And I think that uh, before the end of – you know, you can't do this kind of uh, monetary recklessness, the currency printing, without economic consequences, and the consequences are going to be horrific. Yeah. I think the rest of the decade will bring us the greatest financial calamity in history. And, but that means that it's also the greatest opportunity in history. I mean, this sounds really scary to people, but and, and it is scary, and it's going to be bad for our society as a whole. But it, for the individual, it's also an opportunity because you can protect yourself and gain wealth at the same time. And- I under- Michael, I understand the theory. Uh, you know, let's say that gold rises to the kind of levels you're talking about. Obviously, those people that are buying gold at $1,300 are going to, there's going to be a great transfer of wealth to those folks that bought it now. You know, while everybody else thinks that somehow that Mr. Bernanke is going to pull more rabbits out of hats and he's going to fix things, those people that are buying gold and silver now, there's going to be a tremendous transfer of wealth. But what are the chances now of confiscation, as Mr. Roosevelt, uh, President Roosevelt did in the 1930s. Isn't that a danger for people that own gold now? And if, if you agree with that, uh, that fear, what can people do to protect themselves from that uh, confiscation? You know, this is the only uh, position uh, that I uh, have taken in my book where I have uh, changed my mind and, and reevaluated my position. Mm-hmm. Uh, the in my book, I wrote that the U.S. is the only country that can't uh, nationalize. They didn't confiscate, by the way, back in the 30s. They nationalized. They, mm-hmm. they bought the gold from you. They didn't take it from yes. you. Yes. 
Uh, and then they put it all in one place for safe key in, in trust for all of us. For yes, them. they paid you twenty eight dollars and change, whatever the going rate, whatever yeah. the fixed rate was, and then it, it as uh, twenty dollars and sixty seven cents. Twenty sixty seven. And then a year later, uh, they revalued it to thirty five. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But but uh, anyway, um, <clears throat> the U.S. is the only country where the majority of its currency resides outside of its own borders, because of the global dollar standard. That was a very fortunate series of accidents that, that made the uh, global dollar standard. It was just the default that we went to when Nixon ended Bretton Woods. So it was the history, and that's what you see very clearly in the second episode when you see how every 30 to 40 years the world has a monetary system. You also see how the U.S. ended up becoming uh, the world's major superpower. And um, if Obama was to sign an executive order today requesting all American citizens to turn over their gold at any member branch of the Federal Reserve, just like Roosevelt did back in the 30s, mm-hmm. I believe that uh, brokerage houses and banks and traders all over the world would go, oh, my God, there's something wrong with the U.S. dollar. I've got to dump my dollars and buy gold. Oh. And in a heartbeat, in a week, you would see the dollar crash to zero and gold go to infinity dollars as the majority of the uh, value of the dollars on the planet, the ones that are outside of our own borders, which Obama cannot control, and Ben Bernanke cannot control, as all of those go chasing gold. Uh Now, I have revised my thinking, however, because governments are stupid. I mean, they are idiotic. They might just do... I mean, that is the result. The dollar would crash. Yes. But they still might try it, um, you know, under... I've often said it's dangerous to swim next to a drowning man. He can pull you under, and yes. our government is a, that drowning man. Mm-hmm. So what we did at uh, goldsilver.com is we went out and found a gold chain manufacturer, the one that the company that manufactures chains for all of the jewelry manufacturers that then supply jewelry stores. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we bought uh, uh, necklaces and bracelets and so on uh, from them, and instead of the gold content, instead of the price of a necklace being uh, three, four, five times the price of the gold content, it's much, much closer to spot. Uh-huh. And then we made a two-way market where we buy it back. There's, there's a spread, oh. and at any given moment, we'll buy the jewelry back from you. So it's the same as investing in, it's the same, it's also 22 carat, mm-hmm. which is unusual. Usually it's 18 carat. Yep. 22 carat is the same as a U.S. gold eagle. Mm-hmm. So this is very investable gold that crosses borders easily. There's no example in history of jewelry being confiscated mm-hmm. from a population. It's always coins and bars. Mm-hmm. And so what I've been buying lately as far as my gold, with the uh, gold-silver ratio where it is, we were talking about that earlier, it's at 55 or so. What I do right now is I still take my cash. I split the cash about 90-10. I buy 90% silver, 10% gold, mm-hmm. but the gold that I buy is in jewelry form now. I've got mm-hmm. plenty of uh, gold eagles and some gold bars, but uh, um, now I'm buying jewelry because you can put on $100,000 worth of gold necklaces, and you can fly to a different country, mm-hmm. and when they hand you that landing card, that landing card asks if you are bringing $10,000 or more of financial instruments such as stocks, bonds, or cash in right. the country. Right. It does not ask you about jewelry, and people fly with more than $10,000 worth of jewelry all the time. Sure, sure. And so uh, we created it. We call it Gold Without Borders, and that's the reason we created it was because I believe that it does give people 
you know, most people that talk about confiscation, if it's a dealer, they're usually trying to scare you into an overpriced product like a uh, numismatic right, coin, exactly. which is confiscatable. They're, these dealers all sell these pre-1933 uh, St. Gaudens $20 gold pieces, claiming that they're exempt from confiscation, and those are the very coins that Roosevelt was trying to call <laughs> in from circulation. Uh, yeah. That's that's uh, that's kind of funny. Uh, not funny if it's confiscated. But let me ask you, silver was not, uh, w- Americans were not required to turn in their silver. Uh, do you think silver is less likely to be, to be uh, confiscated? Yes, I think that silver is uh, much an, less likely to be, and it would probably be nationalized again where they purchase it from you. Yeah, and it's, indu- uh, and, it's an you know, industrial if, metal. If they do, do do a nationalization, don't become a criminal. Sell yeah. them your gold or silver. They're going to offer something right around whatever the market rate is at the time, and then buy something of tangible value immediately. Right. Uh, well, just get rid of their, once they give you their currency for your money, and they take your money away from you, buy something with that currency immediately. Well, Michael, we uh, we've uh, we've basically uh, well, we are out of time, and I'm uh, it, it's so there's so much more I could have talked to you about. Uh, there's lots of things, geopolitical things that I think come into play here in the question of what's going on now with our currency. Uh, you know, American military uh, supremacy at this point in time. Although maybe some people are wondering about that going forward. There's so much more uh, that we could talk about, but I do want to tell my listeners. Uh, implore them to go to goldsilver.com. Not only uh, as Michael told you about a very, I think a very good idea, a very good way to buy gold, monetary gold, I would call it, monetary jewelry, I would call it, uh, 22 karat jewelry uh, that uh, is far less likely to be confiscated. Uh, and, but th- the goldsilver.com website has so much, so much interest, so many interesting things there. Uh, you have something called news that uh, you have a lot of uh, very, very informative videos and clips and, and up-to-date things every day. Uh, it is a real fascinating place to go. I'm just trying to look at some of the things that are up there now. First-hand account, how gold jewelry can save your life. Well, there you go. That's just what we're talking about. More nails. That the- is a fascinating story, and it's actually our project manager at goldsilver.com was born in Vietnam. Oh. And gold jewelry saved her life. That Read is, that story. Well, it is the most fascinating. And I had no idea that she had been through all of this. But the only reason that they, that her family lives in the United States and survived is because of the gold jewelry that they had. That is, that is really, really interesting. Um, and, and other things like more nails in the U.S. dollar coffin. Uh, there's another James Rickards who's been on our show. Uh, I, I suppose that is that a video or an article that he's written. Bill Gross is on there. Uh, Max Kaiser has some interesting things to say. America, one giant hedge fund and world's greatest soap opera. I mean, it just goes we on put, and on. There's, we put up typically between uh, 25 and 100 stories every day. Uh, that is, we have we have a person that's full time, and all he does is scan the internet for the most cutting-edge news and analysis that you can find, and he posts them. Uh, but we also, uh, you can get to Hidden Secrets of Money on goldsilver.com, but you can also just go directly to hiddensecretsofmoney.com. Everything is free. There is nothing on hiddensecretsofmoney.com that we charge for. And it's, so uh, it's, uh, check out those videos. It's a fantastic educational website, goldsilver.com. I mean, I'm just looking here. Who controls the world? Well, we talk about this on this show a lot. Bankers warn Obama, don't mess with the debt ceiling again. 
By the way, I might just mention to our listeners that uh, on your video series, at least there's most of the people that you've interviewed, I've had on this radio show, James Rickards, David Morgan, Ed Griffin, uh, John Williams, the economist, uh, Richard Duncan has been on, Doug Casey's been on, James Turk a number of times, all of these people. So if you listen to this show, you I know you're going to want to go to goldsilver.com. Uh, Michael, we're... We're out of time, We've, but I really thank you very much. I'm delighted to have met you finally, not in person, but on the phone here as we're talking. I hope we can meet up sometime personally. I think you're doing a yeah. wonderful job of educating people and helping them prepare for what could very well be, I think, our li- is likely to be the most tumultuous time in American history. Not too far into the future, I think you would agree with that, right? Yes, we're coming up to the end of a debt super cycle that is going to coincide with a shift in world monetary system. Uh, you know, the current one is 42 years old. It's, it's the worst designed, yeah. but the longest lived of all the monetary systems. And it's beginning to implode right now. That's what episode three is about, the, the nails in the dollar standards coffin. And that presents the greatest opportunity, though, in history for somebody that can not let fear grip them, that continues to think and analyze, and you don't want to become paralyzed in this shift because it's going to be the biggest thing that is financially that has ever happened on this planet. Uh, goldsilver.com, uh, you, you've got to go there, folks. That's all I can say. We are out of time. Michael, thank you so much for being with us. I hope we can have you back again sometime soon. Thank you. Folks, don't go away. We'll be right back with our next guest. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Paramount Gold and Silver is a U.S.-based exploration company with multi-million ounce gold and silver deposits. Paramount's primary asset, the Sleeper Gold Project in northern Nevada, is located in one of the world's most prolific mining districts. Paramount's gold equivalent resources stand at over 7 million ounces. Paramount trades on the NYSE under the symbol PZG. For more information, go to www.paramountgold.com. Paramount Gold is located for success in gold and silver exploration. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Well, in my view, Michael Maloney of GoldSilver.com provided us with an excellent overview of the reason why the world is facing a horrendous depression before the end of this decade, and that the 2008-09 disaster was just a speed bump in the road before the real disaster hits us. 
As Michael pointed out, it took 200 years of American history to get our national debt up to $800 billion or eight-tenths of a trillion dollars. Now we are printing over $1 trillion every year. In other words, we are printing 200 years worth of money every year rather than tapering or slowing down. If anything, the speed of money printing will have to keep on increasing because the pathology of Keynesian economics is only now starting to reach its terminal end. As Michael said, he doesn't know what is going on behind the curtain, but he implied that the powers that be must be terrified from what they see. Otherwise, why would Bernanke refuse to taper even a mere $1 billion? As Michael noted, Bernanke could have tapered from 85 to $84 billion this month and then to $83 billion the following month if he didn't see something that was really frightening him. But you should recall that uh, the mere mention of a possible tapering sent the markets reeling uh, earlier this year. That was, in my view, a message that the markets are not rising because the economy is getting better, but merely because it is addicted to the monetary narcotic administered by the Fed on behalf of the rich and powerful corporate interests that own and control the Fed. I think the Fed knows that if it pulls back just a tiny bit of monetary stimulus, the markets will go into a nosedive and we could face a horrendous gut-wrenching deflation and possibly, as Michael suggests, one that could make the 2008-9 episode look like just a mere speed bump in the road. Recently, I was talking to a good friend of mine who I simply will refer to as JB, a former uh, banking colleague of mine when I was a banker, and he told me that he's assuming the Fed will taper. When I expressed some doubts about that, he said, Jay, they have to taper. This good friend of mine assumes that Keynesian medicine that has been administered under both Republicans and Democrats will eventually work, or as he says, it has to work. Of course, those of us in the Austrian School of Economics and who follow the honest economic statistics published by economist John Williams know the real economy is still sucking wind and that Wall Street has risen only as a result of the monetary narcotic. We know that the policies instituted since 2008-9 have been a total failure so far as the real economy is concerned, but that it has been a huge success for the banks and for the stock market. My friend JB, as well as 99% of all Americans, simply don't understand why printing money and deficit spending can't work, especially now that we have approached the terminal stage of Keynesian economics, which has the seeds of its own destruction sown within it. They simply, people simply don't understand that, that that's the case. Austrian economists, of course, do. I admit it isn't easy to understand because we are constantly being indoctrinated by well-spoken, well-dressed PhDs from Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Cambridge, and Oxford. They all insist that it will work and that it is working. They talk so smoothly and they have such impeccable credentials, so people assume they must be right, even though all the evidence points to the failure of Keynesian economics. On October 1st, I interviewed Alastair McLeod, who I think made a very clear explanation as to why the Fed is on a one-way street and why, uh, from a political point of view at least, it simply cannot afford to stop administrating monetary uh, narcotic and doing so at an accelerated pace. Because I think Alastair made the case as well as anyone has as to why we are on that one-way street towards hyper-monetary inflation. Listen to as we replay some of his remarks from my October 1st, 2013 interview. A couple of weeks ago, the Fed seemed to throw the markets a curveball when it announced that it would not taper or reduce its monetization of debt 
and the stock surged, oil, uh, all the commodities surged, gold, silver, everything just went straight up on the charts. You were not surprised by the Fed's decision, but the markets apparently, apparently were judging by that, by that sudden rise in valuations of all the, of the asset prices. Why were you not surprised, Alistair? Um, give us, give us the, uh, give us your thinking there. Okay, I think there were several important reasons. Um, firstly, there's the desire to keep interest rates down. And uh, I think, the, you know, there are lots of things that flow from that. But secondly, also, the need to fund the government deficit. And thirdly, and probably most importantly, the need to maintain the accelerating rate of the production of new money. Mm-hmm. Now, that is, that, that is part of the interest rate story. Uh, but if they slow down the production of money, then we get a crunch. And that's, that's a problem. It's a big, big problem, which is not very widely understood. Alistair, you know, I, I believe uh, that if there was not, I believe I agree 100% with you, what, what, what you just said. If we didn't have this enormous amount of money creation, and not only is it being created at a, at a rapid pace, but the rate of change, the rate of creation of money is rising. I, I, if that's possible, actually, when I look at the chart of the, the monetary base, it's going straight up, isn't it? I mean, it's hard to see it could rise much faster than it is now over time. Yes, no, that you're, 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 you're absolutely right. It's actually we, very scary looking at that. We are actually hyperinflating in terms of the monetary base already, are we not? Yes. Um, I think, I think one's got to look at it slightly more broadly than the monetary base. And, um, really with this in mind, um, you, you've got, uh, an established metric, which is called true money supply, which, mm-hmm. um, was put together by Joe Salerno, um, uh, who was a, um, a well-known Austrian economist. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea basically was to capture the deposit side of uh, banks' balance sheets. And, uh, um, you know, it's not only deposits, but it was also cash. Now, I go one further than that because what I'm interested in is comparing, um, uh, if you like, sound money with unsound money. And mm-hmm. that boils down to gold compared with currency. Mm-hmm. So what we have to do is we have to retrace our steps whereby currency evolved out of being just a money substitute. By money substitute, I mean a token, um, a piece of paper that was actually physically backed by gold and as good as gold. Right. And that, that involves, um, uh, if you like, when it sort of originally started, uh, you'd go along and you'd deposit your gold in the bank, and the bank would either give you a credit in your account for that gold, or they would give you uh, a note which um, was as good as gold, so long as the bank was trusted to hold that gold. Then the Fed was created and uh, before the First World War, and, of course, the, the, the gold that was stored in, the, in, in your and my bank in America was moved into the Fed. So the government ended up owning the gold. So we have to unwind that complete process. So on top of true money supply, which is just looking at deposits uh, between, uh, if you like, non-banks and the banks themselves, you've got to look at the Fed, which actually acts as a bank for all the banks and depository institutions. Now, if you add all that in, you get a new um, measure, which uh, we've called the fiat money quantity. Mm-hmm. And that is hyperinflating. From the moment that the Lehman Brothers uh, went under and the Fed decided that uh, they had no option but to expand the quantity of money to try and rescue the system from failure, uh, the dollar, uh, measured by the um, uh, fiat money quantity, has been hyperinflating. So we are already in hyperinflation by that measure. 
And this is a very, very important point because once you get into hyperinflation, it's very, very difficult to get out of it. If you're going to get out of it, you're going to break businesses, you're going to break banks, and you're going to stand back and let it happen. And I don't see the will to do that anywhere. So I'm afraid that once you start on this monetary hyperinflation, there is really only one outcome. I mean, well, you can sometimes maybe get another outcome, but you've got to be very, very frightened and determined in order to, to, to do it. And we're not there yet. I mean, I think that you need a real crisis. You need prices falling very, very rapidly for someone to say, this cannot be allowed to continue and stop it. But we're nowhere near that, Jay. But we do have the seeds of hyperinflation. So you are believing that we're going to see hyperinflation and then we'll see some sort of a crash and a, and a plunging market, such, uh, asset prices at some point? Well, uh, yeah. Um, at the moment, I mean, if we just talk about asset prices, um, mm -hmm. because there's so many facets to this, uh, everybody I talk to tells me that the stock market is in a bubble, uh, property is in a bubble, uh, mm -hmm. you know, residential price, property prices are going up and so on and so forth. And in London here, I mean, it's just get, going crazy. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, the bubble is money itself. It's not mm -hmm. the individual assets. Now, if you can stop the, 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 the money bubble, then all the other secondary bubbles, like property, stocks, um, bonds, whatever it is, uh, you know, they will also deflate. Right. I see no sign of that happening. So what we could be seeing is the early stages of what um, was well described by an economist back in the 1730s called Cantillon, Richard mm -hmm. Cantillon, who uh, was an economist who uh, was also a banker in France uh, at the time of the Mississippi bubble. And by mm -hmm. the way, got out of that as the richest, richest commoner in the world. But that's, that's, and that is a fascinating story. But Cantillon... Uh, uh, um, understood that when you get uh, new gold and silver coming into um, uh, the money supply, then prices start raising, rising at the point where the money is injected. Now, mm -hmm. if we take that lesson, the place where the money is being injected, of course, is in the financial centers like Wall Street, London, sure. and so on and so forth. So, I mean, anywhere around New York, guess what? Property prices, everything else. I mean, you know, if you want to hire a plumber or, or something like that, he's going to cost you. Why? Because all the money is there. And that money gradually leaks out into the economy. And what we're seeing with the property prices and the stock prices and so on and so forth is the first stage of, the, of Cantillon's uh, effect, whereby money moves from purely financial activities into the economy. And so we are beginning to see that very, very early signal that uh, a broader inflation in prices is on its way. Yes, I can certainly, as one who lives in New York City, agree with you totally on that. And, uh, you know, a good friend of mine, Anthony Santelli, just recently moved from uh, from this area out to Ohio where he's able to buy a, a, what would be considered a mansion, a multi-million dollar house uh, in, in New York City, or you wouldn't even buy it in Manhattan, in, in Queens or upstate New York, even in uh, Westchester County, uh, for, you know, for less than a half a million dollars. And so uh, it is uh, definitely very profound. And, of course, the Wall Street and Washington do a great extent also love this love this uh, this game this money printing game because as you say they are the ones that are the initial recipients of of this newly created money that's created out of nothing now so we saw that mr bernanke you know why do you think they were they were planting the seeds the propaganda was out there to try to keep people to try to get people to believe there could be a tapering when in fact there you know bernanke had to see the same thing that you're talking about why do you think they were planting those seeds 
the propaganda seeds out there because they certainly had about half of Wall Street off balance on this thing, didn't they? Yeah. Well, we can only guess, but and, and my guess, and it is it is a guess, is that um, the FOMC committee um, were getting really rather frightened of the problem that they created. They knew that unless they could back out of QE gracefully, then uh, they were committed to something which, um, you know, has only one logical outcome, outcome, and that is the destruction of the currency. Mm-hmm. And I think it was that that encouraged them to try and test the water and see, um, you know, given a few things going in their favor, I mean, the U.S. budget deficit, for example, mm-hmm. uh, has been falling. So you could argue that you could reduce the scale of um, uh, sales of U.S. treasuries uh, into, into the market. So, um, you know, the tapering could start with that, as it were, and the market wouldn't notice any difference. Mm-hmm. I think they, I think they were absolutely horrified by the reaction in the markets, quite frankly, and not just in America, but um, it affected hot money flows everywhere, and mm-hmm. uh, emerging markets really got it in the neck. I mean, the Indian rupee fell very, very sharply. The Turkish lira fell very sharply. Um, you know, all these currencies really got it in the neck, and I think that, you know, if I'd been on the FOMC and thought, thought, well, let's see if we can get out of this. Um, I think I would have been terrified by the result. And I think that's probably what actually happened. So they uh, sent the trial balloons out there, and when the markets reacted so sensitively, I mean so so dramatically to just the mere suggestion that there might be some tapering that is, da- that is uh, data-dependent, uh, it set the markets in a, in a heck of a, uh, of a trauma, didn't it? I mean, it's, it's pretty yeah, incredible. It- Exactly. It put them in a spin. But th- there is another effect. And if we go back to Mr. Cantillon, um, really the effect of uh, new money going into the economy, it drives up prices where it goes in. The mm-hmm. people who are disadvantaged are the vast majority of the population. So savers, people on fixed incomes, um, you know, workers in factories and things like that. Lowly people, um, or sorry, I, no, they're not lowly. I don't mean, don't mean in that sense, but people who have fairly menial jobs which, mm-hmm. um, on which they subsist, suddenly they find that, that the purchasing power of their salaries is going down. And that, of course, is what's happening. Uh, and uh, th- this, is, this is leading to a situation where um, the initial effect of this money going in is that a few people in Wall Street and, you know, all the professionals <laughs> that serve them are very happy with the situation. But the vast bulk of the population are actually suffering initially from this uh, because their wages aren't going up. Um, the interest on their savings has been going down. And furthermore, their savings are buying less. So you've got a sort of depressive effect. And I think, again, if, you, if you're um, at the Fed, you, you see the, the overall economy. You're not just looking at the 5% you know, who, who are doing very well in Washington and, and, uh, and New York. You're looking at the whole thing, and you're not seeing the sort of recovery that you're happy with being reflected in unemployment statistics, for example. And that's, that's why by moving over to unemployment statistics, it's actually a very, very big signal um, that they're moving away from pure inflation. Uh, they're going to be too late to deal with inflation. They're always too late to deal with price yeah. inflation anyway, but they're going to be even later this time around. So that, that I think, is a, is, is, is a real problem for them. So what happens now, Alistair, as the prices as prices start to rise more dramatically? And, and again, I believe that the middle class 
uh, is much more worse off than what the government's pretending. I believe, and I think you share this view, uh, that John Williams' uh, statistics in terms of what it costs to feed a family of four uh, from one year to the next is, is grossly understated by the government statistics. Do you share that view? Uh, yes, I do, and I think John has done some excellent work on uh, just reminding us uh, the effect of cumulative changes um, over the last 20 years in these statistics, which have had the effect of playing them down. I mean, the real rate of inflation, not only in America, but also over here in, in, in the UK, is considerably higher than stated. Um, uh, the, the, the statistics that come out of government in, in this respect are just really a total fiction. It's, it's got nothing to do with reality. And, of course, um, you know, this has other, other implications, because if you're going to deflate GDP, for example, by the correct amount, you know, we're still in a slump. And this is, this is a huge, great problem. Absolutely. Uh, John Williams points that out, that GDP, in fact, if you really deflate GDP by the real cost of living, of keeping alive, as opposed to these hedonic pricing uh, scams and so forth. I don't know if they're scams. That may be a little strong. But uh, the, the the mechanisms that are used to make things look better than they really are for the average person, uh, that, uh, in fact, we haven't seen any growth, that we're still in a, a depression or recession uh, from the Lehman Brothers. But, but, but let me ask you, so what's going to happen here when price start to really accelerate and we know from history that if you get into a hyperinflationary mode it happens very very suddenly it's almost like a hockey stick isn't it Alistair? Yes um, I think that uh, we have to uh, dismiss from our minds uh, the quantity theory of money mm -hmm. and the reason I say that is that it is a rough approximation of what happens when gold and silver um, uh, or the quantity of, cha of gold and silver changes uh, in, in an economy but when you come to uh, currencies, government currencies, there is no intrinsic value underwriting them whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Only mm -hmm. the full faith and credit, it's just that wonderful phrase, of the government <laughs> itself. Yeah. And so you can see that if that is questioned, um, first in the foreign exchange markets, and then secondly by the users of that currency, you can see that it has the potential to collapse very, very rapidly. So um, I, I think if you, if you can understand, or if your, your listeners can understand that, uh, you know, the quantity theory of money, forget it, it doesn't actually apply. Think Iceland. Um, mm -hmm. when, they hit, when, when the crisis hit Iceland, the Icelandic krona literally halved overnight. And there was no change in the quantity of Icelandic krona. <laughs> you know, it can do that, and it can do yeah. it from the foreign exchanges. And uh, th then... Where uh, the 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 uh, price rises, or if you like, the falling purchasing power of the currency really gets momentum, is if people begin to believe that it's money going down, not prices going up, mm -hmm. and that's a very very important point. And they they they, oh. they found uh, going back into the if you if you look at the history of uh, the Weimar Republic. It's probably uh, around about May uh, 1923 when the public at long last finally twigged that it was money going down, not prices going up. And then that sudden change in psychology results in an increase in the velocity of money, that is the turnover. People no longer have confidence, so they want to get rid of it as fast as they can and exchange it for things of value. Is that what happens? Yeah, I don't actually um, like the term velocity. I mean, basically what happened in the case of the Weimar Republic is that um, nobody would take a check they would only take cash. Mm -hmm. So demand for cash 
uh, marks, uh, increased very substantially, and uh, they had something like seven printing presses working 24 hours a day, seven days a week to satisfy the demand. Because mm-hmm. you would go in, you would write a check, take out the cash. Um, and that really governed the speed of the process of the collapse of the currency. Now, this time around, we've got credit cards. We don't normally run around and go into the bank and withdraw huge bods of cash and go and spend it. In fact, I think there's almost a law against it in many countries. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so uh, what we do, basically, is we just do it off the credit card. So you can actually empty your bank account very, very quickly. And so this time around, if indeed what we're seeing is a rerun of 1923 in Germany, this time around it has the potential to be a whole lot quicker. But, Alistair, the United States, the mighty United States with its military, um, it, it seems to me uh, not comparable to Iceland or even to Germany in 1923. Uh, it, it seems to me that we can send our military to almost any country around the world and say, you must use dollars to exchange your goods and services. As a matter of fact, Ellen Brown, who's been on the show, has pointed out that those countries we deem to be rogue countries are countries that will not play with our IMF and World Bank, do not accept the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency. Uh, to, and, and isn't it possible that the United States might be able to, to stay on top, so to speak, with its military supremacy for some time to come? Or, or do you think that uh, that day is drawing to an end as well? I think the world is changing. Um, Ten years ago, 15 years ago, I think what you just said was very, very true. But now I don't think that um, uh, uh, America can walk into much of Asia and come up with that bully boy tactic. Um, I mean, I can't see the Chinese going with it at all. I can't see Russia going with it. I can't see the satellite states between them going Mm -hmm. going for it at all. Uh, we're now withdrawing from um, places like Afghanistan and um, and Iraq and so on, mm-hmm. um, and we're having to come to terms with with even with Iran. So um, I think that the the writ, if you like, of um, the U.S. military uh, is actually receding quite a lot on this. And I don't. I mean, I know that I think something like eighty five percent or eighty seven percent of international trade is settled in dollars. Um, I mean, it is so dominant in the field of international trade settlement. But uh, China uh, in particular and Russia through the Shanghai Cooperation Organization are building up alternative means of settlement. And they're very keen to do this because um, I don't know if your listeners know, but every time you do a dollar transaction anywhere in the world, it gets reflected back in your bank account in America or your bank's bank account in America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, and Chinese and Russians tend not to like that sort of control yeah. uh, over what they do, <laughs> which I can understand. I don't know why any of us would like that kind of control, but especially the, the Chinese and Russians, it's understandable. I think for us it's a fact of life, Jay, I'm afraid. I'm afraid it is. I, I wish it were not so. Um, so much more to talk to you about. There were six reasons why tapering was no surprise to you. You put it out at some point in time, and, and uh, maybe just we have enough time to, to address the first one, perhaps very superficially. Uh, you said monetarists and therefore central bankers believe that rising bond yields and interest rates will strangle economic recovery. Do you believe that? Um, I, I think I think I have to put a slightly different version forward. The answer is no, I do not believe that in under normal circumstances. The circumstances we have now are 
uh, a bit difficult to try and conduct experiments about rising mm-hmm. interest rates because if we raise interest rates, then there comes a point where quite a lot of people start going bankrupt, basically mm-hmm. because of the very high level of debt. Mm-hmm. And that is really the danger of raising interest rates. I mean, if we raised interest rates, we would cleanse the system of a whole load of malinvestments. But the distortions in the economy from uh, government intervention have now built up to such a huge degree that nobody, and I repeat, nobody, would really recommend following that route. So you're pretty pretty convinced that uh, hyperinflation and hyperinflation of, of prices in general is inevitable? Well, uh, when you get a hyperinflation of a money quantity, like the fiat money quantity, which uh, which I've put together, yes. um, and bearing in mind that, I mean, even Milton Friedman said that uh, <laughs> there was a link between uh, the increasing quantity of money and eventually prices, um, that, and I would agree with that. I think... I think rather than the direct uh, monetary quantity theory of, mon- of, of, of um, money link between uh, the quantity of money and prices, what I would say is that the more we go down uh, the hyperinflating route of actual money, the greater the chance that we're going to um, create a crisis of confidence in the value of the paper currency itself. Well, it's uh, very disconcerting, no doubt about it. Uh, Of course, not a new message to the listeners of this show, but uh, gold is where we've got to be. I guess gold and silver primarily, isn't it? Well, this is a fascinating thing because gold, I mean, today it's been hit. It's down something like $40. um, And uh, there is no reason, really, no substantive reason why this should happen. The dollar itself is weak. When the dollar is weak, gold should at least be stable or maybe even a little bit better. But no, the dollar is weak and gold has been panned and nothing else has really been panned so far as I can see, I mean, other than silver. Um, so we've got a, a really an extraordinary situation. But if, if we go back to the time of the Lehman, uh, the Lehman crisis, um, just before that, the price of gold was $913 an ounce. I'm talking about the sort of close of play uh, in July 2008. Um, now, since then, we've obviously the nominal price has gone up as far as over 1900 and it's now back to a bit below 1300 But if you adjust that price for the excessive quantities of uh, fiat money quantity that have been produced over the period, guess what? Instead of gold going up, it's actually down mm-hmm. in, on an index basis below where it was uh, before the Lehman crisis. In other words, That's before incredible. anyone... Yeah, before anyone really knew that there was such a thing as systemic risk. I mean, uh, you and I had an inkling that there was systemic risk. Yes, yeah. we could sort of monitor things at the time. But the general public had no idea at all. And, dare I say, nor had the central bankers and nor had Wall Street itself. And then we had the, 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 the Lehman collapse. And what happens? Gold is now 30% below where it was before the Lehman collapse. This is definitely a topic for another day, Alistair. I hope you can come back sometime soon. We need to we need to address that more. Find out what's going on in the gold markets. It makes no sense at all, uh, certainly to me and and to you as well. I'd like to get your thoughts, but we are out of time. So I want to thank you very much for being with us and uh, have you back again sometime in the near future. I hope that's very much my pleasure, and I look forward to it, Jay. Well, we do have to go to break right now, but don't go away because I'll be right back with a comment or two about today's show and a word about next week's guests.
always talking business, talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Golden Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine, operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Well, you know, the U.S. dollar was defined as money in Article 1, Section 9, Clause 1 of the Constitution and also in the Seventh Amendment. By definition at that time, everyone knew the dollar meant 371.25 grains of silver, which is equal to one troy ounce of silver. So, applying Michael Maloney's definition of money, the dollar was indeed money, not just a currency as it has become since Nixon detached gold from the dollar. So, in effect, Nixon destroyed our money. He not only destroyed our money, but in the process of doing that, he also uh, did exactly the opposite of what he promised us in that uh, speech that I played for you in the first segment of today's show. That speech delivered in August 1971. Nixon's destruction of our money has led to the destruction of our economy, and it has enabled a den of thieves in Washington and Wall Street to enrich themselves parasitically at the expense of average Americans. That is at the heart of the destruction of the middle class that we are seeing taking place now in America. You know, recently I asked David Stockman at the New York City Junto meeting where he spoke last Thursday, to what extent he thought our fiat money system was responsible for the demolition of the manufacturing sector of our economy and the middle class. He responded in one word, totally. The debasement of the dollar has in effect destroyed the U.S. Constitution and in effect has undone the American Revolution without ever a vote being cast in that, in that direction. I believe both our guests today did a fantastic job of illustrating why we are on a one-way street towards more and more money creation at a faster and faster pace. But unresolved in my mind is whether or not we go through a massive deflation before we get to a hyperinflation, as Michael Maloney suggests, or if Alastair McLeod is right in suggesting that we are in for a hyperinflation first. We might do well to have these two gentlemen on a future show to air that difference out. It would be interesting and hopefully informative and helpful. I think the positive news we can take from all of this is that if you own gold and silver, you should be in a good position when things break down. 
In fact, you may even be better off financially. And I think diversification of gold and silver ownership is very wise. I believe you do yourself a favor also uh, if you own gold and silver shares because keep in mind that in, 19, in the 1930s they were not confiscated or nationalized, as Michael pointed out, uh, as gold itself was during that time frame. I think Michael's view that owning 22 karat gold jewelry is another very wise way to diversify gold ownership and uh, in that way perhaps more likely to uh, avoid nationalization of your metal. Next week, my main guest will be Dr. Robert McHugh, who will talk to us about the jaws of death that he sees forming in the Dow and other major indexes. Robert is also very, very bullish on gold and has predicted a cataclysmic nation-changing event. None of us are wishing for any kind of drastic change, but we do want to be ready in the event that it comes, and there are growing signs, in my view, that we are going to be in for some very difficult times. So you won't want to miss next week Dr. Robert McHugh. Thanks again to all of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Thanks also to Tacey Trump, my producer, and Matt Widener, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.